Let's pray together. Father, we praise you today because your mercy is more. Father, we are sinners. We sin and sin and sin and even when shown the the depravity of our sin, the weight of it, the cost of it, we continue to do the things that we do not want to do. And yet you, Lord, because of the righteousness of your Son, Jesus, you do not hold our sins against us. If we are in Christ, when you look upon us, you see His righteousness. And so, Father, we praise you today. We worship you today. We thank you today for looking upon us as sinners and seeing us and loving us and sending your Son to take that penalty for us. And so, Father, today as we study the Scriptures together, I pray that You would bless my words, that You would speak through me to Your people, that You would bless our ears and our hearts, that we would hear and receive the truth today. That, Father, Christ would be glorified in His people here today at Evans Creek. And so, Father, we praise your name together and glorify your Son together. And we pray all of this in his name, the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. If you would, turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark. As you know, I make a practice of primarily preaching through whole books of the Bible. And I intentionally preached through a number of smaller books upon coming here in an attempt to get you guys kind of used to that as our regular thing that we would be doing. And that's what I've done for the last year. And this was not an intentional thing to happen right at, a, at the year mark, which is where we are. Um, yesterday marked a year since we arrived here. And uh, it was not intentional that on the first Sunday after the year, I was going to start a longer book. It just kind of happened that way. And um, we're going to be in Mark for quite a while. And then the idea there is for us to be able to see the consistent narrative threads through books of the Bible. We just finished looking at Ruth and we talked about the providence of God that we saw throughout that story. And Ruth ended with pointing to a Redeemer to come. And here we are moving into the Gospel of Mark, which is all about that Redeemer. That's where we are. And so I hope and pray that our time together through the Gospel of Mark will be helpful and beneficial for you. Because it will be for me. And so as we begin today, we 
we have to first of all recognize that the, the, the title of the series I've chosen is The King Has Come. The King Has Come because one of the things that we saw throughout the Old Testament was the promise of the coming king. The king was going to come and he was going to make all things right. And he was going to be the one who ruled with righteousness and did what God commanded. And so here we have in the Gospel of Mark, the king has come. And the reason why this was necessary and important is because all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, we see the fall of mankind into sin. God had created all things good. And yet, Eve was tempted by the serpent to be like God. And Adam loved his wife more than he loved God and did not intervene in her being tempted, did not intervene in her sinning. And thus, they fell. And that should have been the end of the story. A holy and righteous God would have been completely justified to wipe everything out. To say, this creature from the dirt has defied me. I'm done with them. And yet, that's not the end of the story. God clothes them. And God makes them a promise in Genesis 3, verse 15, when he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, speaking to the serpent, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And the use of the word bruise there when speaking of the serpent's head is a more severe word, a more significant word. We should rightly understand that as some wordplay there, but the reality here is that the coming offspring of the woman will crush the serpent's head. That all of the, the death and the destruction and the temptation to sin that he has wrought will be destroyed along with him by this coming offspring, this Savior who is to come who will redeem God's people from sin. And all throughout the Old Testament, we see this promise repeated over and over and over again. And we know that it is a repeated focus, and we've talked about that as we've looked together at passages in the Old Testament and talked about how they were pointing toward Jesus Christ. And so now we get to the Gospels, and we see that story. We see the fulfillment of those things. And so, all of the other Gospels, it's okay to have some sound effects every once in a while. All of the other Gospels seem to start by explicitly pointing backwards, right? Matthew and Luke start with genealogies. John starts by linking Jesus with creation in Genesis. But Mark, Mark seems to just kind of get right to the point. Mark skips all that stuff, and he just kind of says, hey, um, here's John the Baptist. He talks about Jesus. Then Jesus shows up, and then Jesus starts preaching. Mark uses the word immediately in his gospel 41 times. Mark has a, a sense of urgency about him. But a careful reading of our text today does show us that promises from the Old Testament are fulfilled 
in the coming of Jesus Christ. And so if you've got one of our sermon listening guides and you're following along, you'll notice that the title of today's message is The Time is Fulfilled. The time is fulfilled. And so this morning we are going to see four ways that we know that the time has been fulfilled and that the promised Messiah has come. Four ways that the coming of Christ is fulfilling the things that we saw promised in the Old Testament. And so let's look together first at Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 8, where we will see the witness in the wilderness. The witness in the wilderness. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So right off the bat, Mark tells us, Hey, this is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Make no mistake who this is about. This is about Jesus. This is about the good news of God's Messiah. So remember, when we read the Bible, when we read the Gospel of Mark, this is not about us. Okay? This is the story of Jesus Christ. And so here we see, right off the bat, Mark linking what's happening to the Old Testament. He quotes from Isaiah and he says, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. This is not the only place that this promise appears in the Old Testament. We also see it in Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, where it says, Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. So one of the things that is promised in the Old Testament is that a messenger will come before the Messiah comes. He will come and he will be telling everyone, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. And lo and behold, here's John the Baptist. And he's running around out in the wilderness looking like a wild man saying, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. And that's what he's preaching. He is preaching the importance of repentance. Repentance is is more than just saying, I'm sorry. There's a lot of confusion today about what is repentance. Repentance is not just saying, God, I'm sorry I did that. Repentance is actively turning away from sin. And so, make no mistake, if your life is marked by apologizing for sin and then continuing in sin and never turning from sin, your life is not marked by repentance. Your life is marked by a love for sin and a desire to not face consequences for it. And John the Baptist is calling out the people of Israel whose history has been marked with lives that are infatuated with sinfulness and a desire to face no consequences for it. Whose lives are consistently drawn toward worshiping idols and ignoring God. And then when the time comes for punishment, God, we're really sorry. Please don't do that. 
And so here's John calling them to true and actual, real repentance. And so he's out in the wilderness. And there's something there for us to see. He is out in the wilderness baptizing people in water. There is a link here for us to recognize. A type of new exodus, right? The first exodus where God called his people out of a foreign land and brought them through water to a promised place. And here we have John in the wilderness baptizing people in water, calling them to repentance. He is in the same way drawing the true people of God out of a place where they are foreigners into his kingdom. And John is presented to us in the same way that some of the Old Testament prophets were. He's out in the wilderness and he's wearing clothing made of camel's hair. The idea here is that this is not a man of leisure and comfort, okay? He is not dressed like we see most people dressed to go to Walmart these days in their comfy pajama clothes, all right? He is wearing scratchy clothes and he's out in the wilderness. He doesn't have a, a nice house to sleep, to, to be in, a nice bed to lay on. He is out there and he's not worried about any of those comforts. Why? Because he has a mission. He is a man on a mission. So much so that he's not even worried about preparing food. He just walks around scooping up bugs to eat. He scoops up handfuls of bugs, dips them in wild honey and just munches down. Reminds me a little bit of the insectarium in New Orleans where you could go and pretend to be John the Baptist for a little while. But he's presented in such a way that we're supposed to see and identify him as another in the line of the prophets of the Old Testament. The ones who came along and said, thus says the Lord. We're supposed to take what he says seriously. Because that is his message. And as he preaches... He continually points to one who is greater in the same way that the prophets did. Over and over and over again, the prophets were pointing to one who is greater. And John the Baptist is explicit about this. He says, there is someone coming who is so much better than me, I am not even worthy of untying his sandals. Now, this is important to understand. Because in our context, we just think, well, yeah, you know, untying somebody's sneakers, that's a low job. Okay, listen. We're talking about people who are wearing kind of open sandals and they're walking around primarily on dusty, dirty paths where animals are. I don't know if you've ever marched in a parade at Mardi Gras, but one of the things that happens in a parade at Mardi Gras is that as you're marching in the parade, you're having to dodge landmines. Not literal war landmines, but animal landmines that are left behind for you. Well, in this day and age, you're talking about people who are wearing open-toed shoes, walking on these paths, and as, as it rains, this poop gets mixed in with this dirt and makes this lovely poop mud substance, and it's all over their feet. And so the job of washing feet was reserved for the lowest servant in the household because it was the grossest job. It was considered the most degrading job. And so here is John the Baptist, a man that all of these people come from miles around to come and hear preach. 
Because they're captivated by him. He's a great man and they're in, they, they, they love to listen to him and they're out there to be baptized by him. And he's going, hey, you guys think that I'm something special, but there is one coming after me who is so much better than me that I am not even worthy to be his lowliest servant. He is pointing to one who is greater. And as a marker of the greatness of the one who is to come, he says, I'm baptizing you with water. But the one who is coming will baptize you with the Spirit, with the Holy Spirit. He is going to come and bring about the indwelling of God's presence with his people. What an incredible, incredible thing to say. Because in the Old Testament, it's considered to be a big deal when the Spirit comes and dwells within people. It's talked about in the pages of Scripture like Saul had the Spirit of God rest upon him and then it was taken away. But here is John saying, hey, this guy's going to come and you're all going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. What a statement. What a statement. And so we see an evidence that the time is fulfilled in the witness in the wilderness. We see this witness who was prophesied about long before his birth out there proclaiming that the Messiah is coming. And the next thing that we see in verses 9 through 11 is we see the testimony of the Father. The testimony of the Father. Let's look together at verses 9 through 11 of Mark chapter 1. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. We see an evidence that the time is fulfilled in the testimony of the Father. In Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, it says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And so here is Jesus who comes out to the wilderness where John the Baptist is in front of all of these crowds and other gospels tell us that John was hesitant to baptize Jesus and Jesus insisted that he do it. And when he does it and when Jesus emerges from the water, we see this incredible scene. Mark tells us that the heavens were torn open. Again, there's that immediacy. There's that suddenness, that ripping. The heavens are torn open. It's a symbol of the coming removal of separation between God and man. We see that after Jesus' death where the veil in the temple is torn in two from top to bottom. Here, we see a picture of that. The heavens being torn open removing some of that separation. And what we see here is we see the Trinity represented. Because the Son is being baptized, the Spirit is descending, and then you hear the Father speaking. And the voice that comes from heaven says, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. And so, we have a confirmation Number one, of the fact that this is God with us. That this is truly the Son of God in human flesh being baptized here in this moment. 
A confirmation of Isaiah 7.14 that his name will be called Emmanuel, meaning God with us. But not only that, not only that, the Father says, with you I am well pleased. With you I am well pleased. One of the things that has marked the people of God throughout history is that they have not always borne his pleasure. He has not been able to look upon Israel and say, with you, I am well pleased. But here is his son in whom he is well pleased. There is something different and significant about this Messiah who comes from the line of David. Because even David, a man after God's own heart, was not someone that God was well pleased with, especially in the later days of his life. And so we see the testimony of the Father here confirming who Jesus is. We see the testimony of the whole Trinity confirming who Jesus is. And so when John says, hey, there's someone coming who is greater than I, I would say that this encounter here solidifies that. Nobody has ever been baptized before by John and the heavens were torn open and God spoke. That's never happened before. God has never spoke from the heavens and told people, this is my servant John, listen to him. But here he is testifying about who Jesus is. So another evidence that the time is fulfilled is the Father's testimony. The next thing that we see in verses 12 and 13, an evidence of the time being fulfilled is that we see the obedience of the Son. The obedience of the Son. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. There's something different here than you would expect. And one of the things that we're going to see over the course of Mark's gospel is that Jesus is often not who people would have expected. And so here's the very first thing. Jesus is baptized and he comes out of the water and God says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. And then instead of going and starting to preach right away, he is immediately sent out into the wilderness. There's that immediately word again. Again, God does not operate under the bounds of what we think he ought to do. God's mission, God's intention in what he is doing is often different than we can understand. It's often bigger than we know. Because what did the Israelites think? The Israelites thought that he was coming to inaugurate a kingdom on earth. But what was God doing? God was dealing with the real problem. The problem was not that Israel wasn't at its rightful place at the pinnacle of mankind. The problem was sin. And so how better to illustrate that Jesus is there to deal with sin than to send him into the wilderness to be tempted the same way that Adam and Eve were. Jesus was tempted by Satan just like Adam. But what is different about Jesus? In Jeremiah 23, 5 and 6, it says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. 
And he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. The prophet Jeremiah is pointing ahead to the Messiah who will be our righteousness. Not only will Jesus, the Messiah, be righteous, but he will be our righteousness. And so here is Jesus sent out into the wilderness to succeed where Adam failed. And so he spends 40 days there. That number 40 in connection with the wilderness ought to stand out to you a little bit, ought to prick up your ears. Because where did, what did Israel do? They wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. And so God here, again, pointing to the old exodus, making a new exodus, is saying, I am succeeding in my son where you have failed. Where Israel wandered for 40 years and did not obey me, my son will go into the wilderness and he will obey. Jesus was tempted repeatedly for 40 days. Other Gospels give us three temptations. I guarantee you there was more than that. I guarantee you there was more than that. Because here's Jesus, who is fully man, who has feelings like we do, who has experiences like we do. He has to eat because he gets hungry. He has to sleep because he gets tired. He probably got stomach aches. He probably got headaches. He dealt with the same types of things that we do. And so I don't know about you guys, but the idea of spending 40 days in the wilderness, being harassed by Satan, surrounded by wild animals, doesn't seem all that fun. And here's Jesus, who is doing that willingly, submitting to that willingly, to show that he will be obedient. And what does the word tell us? It tells us that the angels were ministering to him. They were ministering to him. Which is a way for the word to tell us that Jesus was obedient in the midst of his temptation. Angels were coming to minister to him because he was not doing the things that he was being tempted by. Because what was Satan tempting him with? Satan was tempting him with, hey, listen, turn those stones into bread and eat. I know you're hungry. All of this can be yours. You're God. Do whatever you want. And Jesus didn't do that. So angels were coming to minister to him. Satan was tempting him to do things himself and to not trust the Father. And what did Jesus do? He trusted the Father, and the Father was faithful to take care of him. Jesus showed that the time was fulfilled in his obedience. The obedience of the Son shows us again that the time is fulfilled. And the final thing that we see in our passage today that shows us that the time is fulfilled is the proclamation of the gospel. The proclamation of the gospel. In Isaiah 61, verses 1 through 4, it says this. 
The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord that he may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Isaiah gives us a glimpse of the message of the Messiah. And what is the message of the Messiah? That God has anointed him to bring good news. The word gospel means good news. That he has been anointed to bring good news to God's people. And what is that good news? That the Lord is going to bind up the brokenhearted. That he is going to release the prisoners. That he is going to build up what has been torn down. That he is going to right what has been wrong. And we know that that is what Jesus came to do. Jesus did not come to proclaim a social gospel. He did not come to try to make your life better. He did not come to try to make your life comfortable as you walk down a road to hell. He came to rid the world of sin because that is the only way that things can be made right. And so we see this message of the Messiah And in in Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, it says this, Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. Proclaiming the good news of God. And saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. The time is is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus, after being in the wilderness, comes back. And he starts to proclaim this good news. And he says the time is fulfilled. The promise that God made in Genesis chapter 3, that the offspring of the woman would come and crush the serpent's head, It's finally here. It's finally here. He says the kingdom is at hand. Remember, the Israelites are waiting for a king. They know that someone is coming from the line of David who is going to come and sit on the throne and he's going to reign. And Jesus doesn't then say, so everybody grab your sword. We're going to fight some Romans. He says, so repent and believe the gospel. And I guarantee you, there were some Israelites who kind of went, wait, what? Hold on, wait, no, no, no. If if you're the Messiah, then you're the king, and you you got to elevate us, you got to raise us up to be this mighty kingdom that rules over all the earth. And Jesus says, no. The kingdom is at hand, so repent and believe the gospel. Again, Showing us that God's intention, God's plan is not our plan. His ways are not our ways. He could make Israel the mightiest kingdom in all the world. And it's not going to fix what's wrong. It's not going to make Israel any better. There is only one way to fix it. And that is through the forgiveness 
of sins. And so while some would say that Jesus is the wrong kind of king, the Gospel of Mark shows us right here in the first 15 verses four different ways to know that Jesus is the king who was promised. He is the Messiah who was promised. And so what do we do with this? We hear these things from the Gospel of Mark, and what do we do? Well, we can ignore it. We can say, that sounds like a a nice story. And we can just set it aside and move on with our lives. We can say, that guy sounds crazy. Not planning on, on listening to him in any way. Or, we can do what he calls us to. Repent of our sins and believe the gospel of God. Believe that the kingdom of God is at hand. And that's a hard thing to recognize because we look around and our world is still pretty messed up and there's still a whole lot of sin all around us. And so it's hard sometimes to look around and go, yep, the kingdom of God is at hand. Brothers and sisters, look around this room. The kingdom of God is at hand. This is the kingdom of God on earth right now. It is in us. It is in this church. It is in the gathered church all over the world this morning, singing and praying and reading the scriptures and preaching in all different kinds of languages, in all different kinds of settings. That's the kingdom of God. And so the call this morning to all of us is the same. Repent and believe the gospel of God. Repent and believe the gospel of God. In that passage in Malachi, there's more to it. Verses 1-5 through five of Malachi 3 says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts, but who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. Then... I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. Who can endure the day of the Lord? Malachi here gives us a pretty bleak picture. On the one hand, you have the people of God being refined like silver and washed by fuller's soap. You're talking about extraordinarily hot fire to melt away impurities and extremely strong soap to wash away stains. And God says, for my people, that's what's coming. And if you're not my people, it's even worse. See, here's the, here's the reality that we are facing, folks. We cannot stand in the judgment of God. Only one can, and that's Christ. 
Christ has been refined in our place. Christ has been judged in our place. Christ has taken the punishment and the penalty on himself for us. And so here we are rejoicing in the goodness of God because He has taken our sins and has cast them as far as the east is from the west. That is what Christ does for His people. And so when we are called to repent and believe the gospel, that's why. And so that's my plea with you. Whether you are a Christian or not, repent and believe the gospel. That's not something we do one time. It's not something I did when I was 12 and walked down an aisle and now I'm good. I never have to repent and believe the gospel again. I preach the gospel to myself over and over and over again every single day. And we all must repent and believe the gospel. And if you are here today and you have never repented and believed the gospel, if you have never turned away from your sins and trusted fully in Christ for salvation, you must do that or you will be under his judgment. The point that I want us to see from Mark chapter 1 verses 1 through 15 is that it's too late to delay. It's too late to say, oh, well, that's going to happen later. I'll deal with that another time. The time is at hand. The time is fulfilled. Repent and believe the gospel now. Do not delay. Do not delay. Because you don't know how much time you have. You don't know. Repent and believe the gospel because Christ has Let's pray. Father, we, we ask that you would work in our hearts to draw us to yourself. Lord, please convict us of sin and of righteousness, that we would know and believe that you are Lord, that we would trust in you fully, that we would turn away from our sins and trust in you for salvation. During this time, Lord, as we take the Lord's Supper together, pray, Father, that you would cause our hearts to rejoice in Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen.